Well, if someone were to ask you today, what is your desire for these hours that we spend together, would you be able to answer them? In fact, I believe that it would be good for you to ask one another during the course of this conference just to kind of keep tabs on what's happening in one another's life and to express our interest in one another, our partnership with one another, that that desire might truly come to pass. We talked about the importance of desire how absolutely essential it was to get a clear focus on what we desire from God and what we expect from God so that we can give God the seed to bring about his desire into our lives and his expectations. I couldn't help but when I went back to my room late last evening to the Lord brought a passage of Scripture to mind and I'd just kind of like us to start with that this morning. Jeremiah 29 Jeremiah 29, verse 10, beginning with verse 10, in which God is longing for his people, Israel, to experience and to understand his desire for them. And he expresses that desire, especially in verse 11. Verse 10 says, For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you. And I will perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. Verse 11 is a scripture I think every one of us need to have buried in our heart. God is speaking and he says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. They are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Another translation says to give you an end and expectation. For I know the thoughts that I think of you, and they are thoughts of good, of peace, and not of evil, to give you an end and an expectation. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations." And from all the places where I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place where I, whence I caused you to be carried away captive. And as we began to see the great desires of God's heart for us, how tremendously expectant God is of the investment that he makes in us. Stop and realize for a moment that when God gave his son for your salvation, the father made a tremendous investment of himself. And I don't think the father would be any less wise than we would be. And when we make an investment, we have certain expectations from that investment, don't we? In fact, we're rather disillusioned if our expectation in that investment doesn't come true. We do not invest in that which we expect to be a loss. That may be our actual experience, but it's not our actual expectation. And we make an investment, we expect to reap dividends. We expect that it will be a profitable investment. And God has made an investment in us, a very valuable investment, for he has given his Son on our behalf. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And out of that investment, God has expected, he has a desire for that, the fruit of that investment, that out of our lives will come back profit in the kingdom of God, and out of our lives will come back experience, that we will experience everything that God desires for us. And we closed last night talking about these three particular aspects of desire and openness, total availability to God, learning how to commit our way to the Lord, learning how to abandon ourselves to the will of God, learning how without fear to be able to trust God instead of being afraid that God somehow is going to take advantage or God is going to work our harm, which he is not capable of doing. We close just briefly mentioning this matter of obedience. The more closely our desire aligns with the desire of God for our life, and the more closely our will agrees with the will of God for our life, the easier obedience becomes.
I found that there's a way for spiritual troubleshooting. And that is if I come into a season of my life in which I find obedience is really a problem for me, in which I'm struggling to obey, I'm struggling to follow my understanding of what God's asking from me and of me at that particular moment, then I immediately go back to take inventory of what my desire, what are the chief desires of my life, what could I single it down to, the greatest desire of my life. Because any time that desire is not measuring up with what I understand from God's Word, the desire of the Lord is for my life, and any time my will is constantly butting heads with His will, then I can know that's the cause of the reason that I'm having problem in the area of my obedience. The importance of this desire, let's look very briefly at Luke, the 24th chapter. You remember the setting of the 24th chapter of Luke, and that is it's following Jesus' death, crucifixion, burial, and immediately following his resurrection, although these two disciples were unaware of his resurrection. Oh, they had been told of his resurrection, but you see, it was too unthinkable to believe. It was so far beyond their expectations that they had to dismiss it because it didn't fit within the narrow confines of what they had presumed was going to take place. They saw only the closed tomb. They could not believe the reports of the empty tomb, and so they were en route from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And Emmaus is not very far outside the, the city of Jerusalem, even presently. It would not be a terribly long journey, although walking would seem to make it longer, I'm sure, than it would be to us. But in Luke, the 24th chapter, as they're walking along, and we'll just kind of pick up some verses, so I'll, I won't read completely through this, but beginning with verse 14, and they talked together of all these things which had happened, and it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, trying to figure it out, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were holden that they should not know him. Their eyes were dimmed of spiritual perception. Why did they not recognize Jesus? Because they were not expecting Jesus. The least likely thing to happen to them would be for Jesus to come and be with them because they had relegated him to a tomb. He was dead, he was buried, as far as they were concerned, now they were trying to put the pieces of their life back together. They were trying to return to some normal semblance of the life that they had before they began following this man, Jesus. And so that prevented their spiritual vision. Our lack of desire and our lack of expectation also limits our spiritual perception and our spiritual vision. Because I have discovered in retrospect many times, as we'll see these two disciples have, that Jesus has accompanied me in some of the situations of my life. But because I was so preoccupied with my situation and so unexpected of his presence, though he walked with me, I never realized the benefit, the personal profit of his presence in my particular situation. My eyes were holden that I did not know him. I did not see him. It is important to get our desire and expectation down because if we do not, it could, we could, it could cause us to fail to experience what it is that God wants to share with us. And he drew alongside of them and he said, what manner of communication is this? What, what are you gentlemen talking about? What are you reasoning about together? And they began to explain. They asked him if he were a stranger in Jerusalem and had not known the events of the last number of days. And they began to recount for Jesus how that their hopes had been upon him. Verse 21 says, But we trusted and hidden, couched in the, now those few words are, are the, the cry of shattered hopes, of shattered dreams, of desires that they had which were misplaced desires. They had desires for an earthly kingdom. They had a desires for a king of their making, a king of their fashion and semblance. And when Jesus didn't turn out to be a king after their ideas. I mean, it was unthinkable to the Jewish mind that the Messiah could possibly be slain no matter how many times the Old Testament spoke of his death. It was unthinkable to them that a king could come who would be a sovereign over Rome and not destroy the Roman armies and drive out the oppressors and reestablish the previous kingdom of Israel. It was unthinkable to them. 
And with a cry in their heart, they said, but we had trusted that this Jesus would be he. And then Jesus begins. I like it because I see that he does not scold them. And he does not come into our lives to scold us, to chide us. James said, if any lack wisdom, the ability to see life situation from God's point of view, let him ask of God who giveth freely to every man and upbraideth not. He never chides us. He never scolds us because of our need to have perception and perspective. And Jesus comes alongside them. And what's he begin to do? He begins to take them back to the word. Now, they didn't have the printed word. They, they only had the Old Testament prophets. But they were tremendously knowledgeable because the Jewish boys and the Jewish children were schooled in the Word until they would basically have known it by rote. They would have known it by memory. And he takes them back through the writings of all the prophets. And he shows them how it is the most natural conclusion of everything that the prophets were saying and pointing to that Jesus should have suffered these things that he might enter into the glory that God had prepared, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, verse 27, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now the day is wearing on, and they drew near unto the village, Emmaus, where they went. And here are the last phrase of verse 28, and he made as though he would have gone further. You see, the revealer, had come into their midst to bring insight, and that he had done. It had not been insight that was perfected or completed yet, but he had opened the scriptures to them. He had not opened them yet to the scriptures. And he made as though he would have gone further. He made as though when they were going to turn aside to the place they were traveling to, as though he would have continued in his travels. Why would Jesus have done such a thing? I believe for one thing, as in our spiritual pilgrimage, there are always places where Jesus would make as though he were going to go further to see if we have a desire for him to abide with us. Verse 29 says, And they constrained him, saying, Abide with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is far spent, and he went in to tarry with them. You see, Jesus will never go further than our desires. Jesus will not walk on past our desires and our expectations. Jesus will never neglect the openness of our life to him, the availability of our life to him. Jesus will never disdain the abandonment of ourself to the will of God. That's exactly what it is that he has whetted our appetite to bring us to. That's why he opens the scriptures to us, that we might then have a desire that will open us to the scriptures. There's a lot of difference between the two, isn't there? I'm not trying to play word games with you, but sometimes we've got to stop and think. There are many times that the Scripture is open to us when we are not very open to obey what the Scripture says. There are times that I have an intellectual understanding of what Scripture is saying or asking without having an emotional openness to want to permit that Scripture to become effective within my life. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it, and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour, returned to Jerusalem, found the eleven gathered together, and them that were with him, saying, The Lord is risen indeed. What caused them to become believers? They didn't even know what their desire was, but they had a desire. They may not have been able to articulate what that desire was. They may not have been able to write it down in a sentence or two or a paragraph. But there was nevertheless within them a desire to linger with this revealer who is walking with them. He was saying some things into their life that they hadn't quite put the pieces together, but they did recognize that what this, this friend in their journey was saying to them was something that they had to know more about. And they constrained him. It's a strong word. They besought him. They had a tremendous desire for him to remain with them, abide with us. And the product of our desire and his abiding will always be new understanding 
and spiritual perception. Insight into what is in the heart of God. You see, Jesus wanted their eyes to be open when he drew near them at the beginning of that journey. But Jesus' desire could not be fulfilled until there was within their hearts the initiation that was born out of their desire for him and his abiding presence there. And as he broke the bread, their eyes were open and they saw him and they knew him. God wants us to have that kind of desire in our life so that we can experience the fullness of what the purpose of God is. Turn to the book of Ephesians. If you are not yet able to articulate the desire that's within your heart, at least recognize that desire and hold it, hold it very carefully, hold it, cherish it, value it, because that is the source out of which God will speak to you and do in your heart and life what he longs to do. The book of Ephesians, let's read verses now again through here because we're going to be looking at several chapters. So I'll try to keep you up with me and I will not be reading all of the verses, but at the beginning we're going to be reading the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. We talked about the need for purpose in our lives. And purpose always begins with God. Purpose always begins in the heart of God. The book of Ephesians is really an overview of all of the program of God. It is a condensation as such of everything that God has intended and yet intends and everything that is in between and how God will bring his purpose to pass. So with that in mind, thinking of the purpose of God and the heart of God, let's begin with verse 1 in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, writing to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. You hear that very carefully. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, before there was anything other than the heart of God. You and I were there. As he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. God did not purpose a world and then man to occupy it. God purposed man and built a world for man to inhabit. that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Those two words are always linked when you talk about what God is doing, the activities of God and lives, the purpose of God and the pleasure of God according to the pleasure of his own purpose. For purpose and will would be synonymous for us. He chose us in him before the world was even founded, before the foundations of the world were laid. And, and then Ephesians tells us how he purposed us. How does God see you in his heart? Holy and without blame. Anybody here feel terribly holy? Anybody here bold enough to claim being without blame? No, we're not, are we? In fact, every one of us are terribly conscious of the flaws and imperfections within us, the shortcomings that are within our lives, but hidden within the heart of God, cherished within the heart of God, and chosen within the heart of God, and now effectuated through the life of Jesus Christ, God sees us as being holy and without blame. Having predestined us unto the adoption of children according to the good pleasure of his will, 
that we might be to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom, Christ Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself purposed in himself that in the dispensation, the ordering of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, gathering everything in Christ, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory now repeatedly through those verses and I admit we are rather hurrying through them, but repeatedly through them I hope that you are catching a sense that they are filled from beginning to end with the fact of the purpose and the pleasure of God, a God that has purposed his creation long before he ever first into the midst of the chaos, uh, the disorder, the darkness, the desolation, the emptiness, before he ever said, let there be and there be Cain. Before that moment ever arrived, there was a purpose that was planned within the heart of God. God does not react to crises. God is the master designer, the master planner, the master organizer. And in his purpose, in his heart, he has been pleased to place us there and to ordain the kind of lives that through Christ Jesus he would enable us to be able to live. But that was not the end. His purpose was not merely bringing forth creation. His purpose was that that creation might come to the place of re reflecting and revealing the glory of its creator. We look at a world around us and that part that's unspoiled by man and unpolluted by man and we see the beauty of creation and a lot of people stop right there. They have a tremendous awe for the creation of God. But creation is to reveal the Creator. And God is not merely trying to take our lives and make us Christians. It may startle you to know that God's highest ambition is not to save you from hell. That is but the beginning of what God intends. Salvation is not the end product of the heart of God. Salvation is the bare minimum. Without that, you are not even in the family. And we have sometimes confused the bare minimum of spiritual experience with being the sum total of spiritual experience, and it is not. God did not purpose merely to redeem mankind. God's purpose has not changed. His purpose is exactly the same after man's fall as it was before man ever fell. He created man and purposed man that man should be to the praise of his glory. And the Bible said that he is working all things according to the counsel of his own will, of his own purpose and pleasure. Which means that though man fell, though sin entered, God's purposes were not affected. God had to introduce what he had planned, and that is the redemption to restore man back to the original creation, to the original purpose that God had. We have become rather man-oriented and rather short-sighted in our understanding of the heart of God. And because of the, the awfulness of our lost condition, and the glorious experience of Jesus Christ reclaiming us from that lostness, we have presumed that that's what God was all about. And that's not what God is all about. God saves us merely to bring us back to where he can complete the intention he had from the very beginning, the original creative purpose. 
he purposed in himself, and he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. To understand this of what God cherished in his heart, are there any of you here who are artists in any kind of field of woodworking, any kind of, of field of craft? Any of you? All right, Dick's a musician, I presume. So he is a craftsman in the area of, of music. Okay, that's what I was thinking. All right, what, give me, come on, give me some feedback here. Who is what? Fantastic. Okay, you don't, you don't have to apologize for five loaves and two fishes. Jesus fed a multitude with them. <laughs> Somebody else? Anybody work with wood or furniture? Anybody? Any home builders? Home builder? Shutterman. Okay. Songwriter, an artist, a, a builder, a furniture maker, a potter, and a thousand different other things. An author, a writer, a lot of different things that we could think of. Long before it is ever seen in reality, long before the product is perfected, the artist sees it inside his own heart. The artist visualizes what that end product is intended to be. Now, we have a problem God doesn't have, and that is that our visualizing is usually far greater than our abilities. That is not true with God. What God visualizes and purposes, he is perfectly capable of perfecting. There is no lack in the two areas with God, but with us. The craftsman he sees in his own heart and mind. He may not even have the ability to put it on paper for anybody else to build it, but he sees within his own heart, he envisions. And then his hands begin to work to translate what he envisions and to bring it into reality that even the, the most, the, those among us who are the least astute in that particular craft can see and behold and admire and probably envy that we wished we would have been able to perfect something such as that. The songwriter hears the melody in his heart, in his ear, long before he's able to set down at an instrument and play it for us to hear it in our ears. That's what we want you to envision with God, for that's the way that the heart of God... God saw the perfectness of all that he was going to make long before it was ever made. That's why in Genesis, God says, let there be, and then God steps back and he says... It's good. Why did he say it was good? I mean, nothing had even happened yet, really. It didn't have any track record of being good. Performance certainly wasn't guaranteed, and we see that if he had been saying it was good because of performance of his creation, that was going to, to be rather drastically uh, set into upheaval pretty quickly through Adam and Eve's failure and sin. What was God saying it is good? God as the craftsman was looking at the work of his hands and seeing that the work of his hands maps the intention of his heart. And God was saying that is good. Now maybe that does nothing for you, but that does a great deal for me to know that my God has envisioned good out of my life and that my God is perfectly capable of performing that good. My God has all of the abilities and all of the dedication and commitment that's necessary for him to translate what the vision and heart and pleasure of his, own, of his own purpose is to bring that forth, to work that out until it comes into reality that all can then see and behold the beauty and the ability of the Creator, not merely the product that is formed, but the producer who brought forth that product. At creation, God had purpose. He did not simply say, let's see, what will we do? I guess we need light. Let there be light. Let's see. Now, what comes after light? <laughs> you know why that's humorous to us? Because it is so ridiculous to imagine that God did not have a sense of order before he ever began producing and creating. Now, we don't find that difficult to believe in the natural creation. Why should we believe that somehow God has changed in the realm of the spiritual creation? God didn't say, let's see. 
What do we need to do for God? I know. Save him. Now let's see. What next? Well, let's, let's take off some of the rough edges now. now. But that's the way we think or act as though that's the way God works in our lives. God purposed that which he would bring forth and is perfectly capable of doing it and has all of the resources that are necessary to work all things according to the counsel of his will. And so when God places his hand upon our life and God be makes that commitment to us, it is an eternal commitment that God will work with us as long as it takes to bring about what he originally intended unless we short-circuit the process by removing ourselves from the workmanship of God or frustrating the work of God and the moment-by-moment -moment endeavors of the Holy Spirit in our life. So at creation we see purpose and we see approval. God gave a benediction. By the way, benediction does not mean good night. Benediction means good saying. Benedictions are not necessarily reserved only for the close of something, although that's where we've come to be. Would Brother Jones please stand and give the benediction? That means good night, God bless, see you later and turn the lights out. Benediction that God gives is that good saying of God's approval over that which is, he sees that his hands have brought forth what his heart has purposed. The purpose and approval that we see God declaring was very good was really in three different areas. The first was likeness. The second was dominion, dominion. And the third was service. We could put purpose. We said that there is an innate desire within every one of us to live lives that are useful, are purposeful. And at God's creation, as he brought forth all, and then God created man out of the dust of the earth, God formed man, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Out of Adam's, ri out of Adam's rib, he took and made Eve a woman, and Eve experienced the, the, the life of God, and then God immediately established what the orders, what the purpose that he had from the very beginning, and the purpose of God has not changed. What God is doing in your life and my life is exactly what God did in Genesis, the first chapter, as he brought forth initially. The purpose of God is an eternal purpose. It always has been, it is now, and it always will be. And it does not fluctuate and it does not change. It does not rise and fall with the Dow Jones average. <laughs> he said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And he made man in his image and in his likeness. And so likeness, and we're going to see, likeness is maturity, spiritual maturity, the difference between spirituality and maturity that we were talking about. You can be tremendously spiritual without being mature. The newest babe in Christ can be wholeheartedly spiritual, but he is certainly not mature. And maturity in Jesus Christ is not only a product of the passing of time. You can have known the Lord for 30 years and still be spiritual, but not very mature. Maturity is not the natural byproduct of passing time. It is specifically the byproduct of our becoming more and more like Jesus, that we become like him in the character and the conduct of Jesus Christ, the character which is the inward likeness and the conduct which is the outward likeness. And we have had great frustrations in the church for a lot of years because we've been more interested in trying to make men's conduct to be more like Jesus and if we don't get the character straight, we'll never keep the conduct straight. God never works from the outside in. God always starts on the inside out. He said, let us make man in our likeness. We said for you that maturity, a, def a definition, not the only definition, my definition, of spiritual maturity is rightly responding to life situations according to biblical patterns of behavior, and that translates into Christ's likeness, living the way Jesus lived responding in all of my situations as Jesus responded in all of his situations. That's maturity, likeness. We are made in the likeness of God. Jesus Christ redeemed us from our lostness in order that he might restore the likeness and the image of God into us.
that the character of Jesus might become not just theologically right, but it might become experientially right within us, that we might experience that dominion. He told Adam and Eve, he said, Adam, he said, we've created you in our likeness and our image. He said, and we want you to subdue and to have dominion over everything. God did not create man to be trampled upon. God created man to rule under delegation in his rulership. And I'm horribly tempted because there's a huge little world that's wrapped up in that one sentence. There is no rulership apart from the delegation within his rulership. The moment we violate that, we no longer have authority to rule. If we violate the delegation we have received, we have also at that moment negated whatever authority we previously had. No man has authority who is not under authority. Dominion. God created us to walk in authority within the kingdom of God. Most of us are the pawns of the circumstances and situations around us. We are forever like that bouncing ball we talked about last night. We are forever reacting to our situation. We're forever reacting to people. We are forever the victim of our experiences. But God did not create us to be the victim of our experiences. God created us to share in his victory. You know, it's rather trite. Someone says, how are you doing? You said, fine, under the circumstances. What are you doing under the circumstances? God never intended for his children to live under the circumstances. God intended for us to experience what we're going to see in a moment, that we were raised up and made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's a lot of people who have little signs, or used to, I don't see too many of them anymore, that said, keep looking up. There was a fellow who had one said, keep looking down. Someone said, what in the world's the matter with you? He said, well, I've just realized where I'm seated. See, we are above our situations, or we're intended to be, or we can be. I shouldn't say we are. I should say we are expected, or we are authorized to live above and beyond. That's dominion, rulership, authority. That's exactly what God is still doing. God is still working to bring about authority. God is wanting us to become more and more Christ-like, more and more mature, more and more right in our responses so that God can, out of our responses, God can begin to build within us and entrust to us spiritual authority. God would be a fool, and I guarantee you that he is not, to give authority or right of rulership to those who are immature or childish. Now, we're called to be childlike in the kingdom of God, but not to be childish. I have a son who is just waiting for the day that the state of Texas says he can have a driver's license. I have, for a number of years, driven 280Zs, sports car, and he has looked forward to the day that that sports car, that 280Z, would be his. But I'm a whole lot smarter than to hand my... 15-year-old son the keys to that car and give him the authority to drive it because he doesn't have the maturity to handle it. He has the ability to drive it, but he doesn't have the maturity to drive it. You see, one of the reasons that so many believers cause more havoc than help within the kingdom of God is because they have gained some abilities they presume that entitles them to exercise ministry. And ability does not release us to minister. Authority releases us to minister. Anointing releases us to minister. And God grants anointing and God grants authority not to those who are able. He grants it to those who are mature. We will never be more effective in ministry than we are mature. Now, I'm very grateful that God did not hold this matter of ministry or function or usefulness in the kingdom of God. I'm very grateful that God didn't say, when you're mature, then you can. We will see. Maturity is not a place we arrive at. It's a process that's happening in our life. And ministry does not wait for perfected maturity, but ministry is always proportional to maturity. 
as there is in my life a developing likeness to Jesus Christ in character and conduct, to that same degree, to that same proportion, I am authorized by God to rule with him. I am given authority to the proportion in my life that there is maturity. Maturity is not an option within the believer's life. Maturity is the absolute, essential, bottom line, foundation of where God starts. Everything else that God wants to do with your life and out from your life is based upon your getting it down to an understanding of what God's purpose is, and God's purpose always starts with maturing. And maturity is not something you're going to see completed. Maturity is something you're going to see is a continual, perpetual process that God is leading you in. No one can lay hands on you. No one can pray for you and it happen. You cannot read the Bible enough hours. You cannot fast enough days. You cannot go to enough conferences and retreats. You cannot listen to enough, enough tapes. You cannot attend enough church services. You, you cannot read enough books. There is no way under God's heaven that it will happen in its, in, in its entirety. It is an ongoing process that is the product of our walking in submission to what his purpose is and our submitting our lives in obedience to what his pleasure is. No man is mature because of what he knows. All of us know far more than we obey. A man is mature according to what he obeys. So maturity is not storing up intellectual information, even if it is spiritual information. Maturity is not the product of getting enough religious facts or Bible facts. Maturity is the product of my life coming under the control and discipline of the Holy Spirit and my desires beginning to be aligned with the desires of God and my will beginning to be conformed to the will of God so that it is more and more natural in a supernatural way for me to walk according to the purpose and the pleasure of God. And to the degree that I am understanding the purpose of God and, and agreeing, complying, and obeying, and submitting to the purpose of God, and to the degree that my life is fulfilling the pleasure that is within the heart of God, to that same degree my life is maturing. And to the proportion my life is maturing, God is given within my life an increasing authority or an anointing that what he intends will actually be accomplished. You cannot do the work of God without authority from God. Authority is kind of like power of attorney. All of you understand the principle of a, the power of attorney? Is there anybody here in the legal profession? Anybody here got a good, quick, accurate description of what a power of attorney is? I've signed a number of them. Not sure how accurately I can define what it is. Power of attorney is basically a legal form in which I can sign over to a person of my choice to act on my behalf that their signature becomes equal with my signature in transacting my business. Now, it does not give them the... Well, it does give them the ability to do whatever they'd like in my name, but actually the spirit of the power of attorney is merely for them to carry out what my will is in those affairs of business. And authority within the life of the believer or dominion within the life of the believer is rather Christ investing within us. He said, in my name, we are given the power of attorney of Christ's name, not for us to use indiscriminately. So a lot of people go around, Jesus said, in my name, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. And people go around saying, in the name of Jesus, and expecting that that's some kind of magical prescription that will cause whatever I want to see happen to happen. And I've got news for you, it won't because that's a violation of the spirit of that power of attorney, if we can use that, that, that uh, particular illustration. It is rather my discerning what the purpose of God is in any situation, what the desire and pleasure of God is, and then on God's behalf and in God's power and anointing, daring to believe that God will bring forth that which he pleases. Dominion and authority, but then in service. God did not leave Adam and Eve idle. And God does not bring us into his family and kingdom for us to be left idle. God did And again, churches are sometimes the worst offenders. Everybody ought to be doing something. 
No. Everybody ought to be having a priority of discovering what it is God wants them to be doing. And that will leave nobody sitting, I guarantee, because there is not a place in the heart of God for idleness within his kingdom. God put Adam and Eve in the garden and he placed them there and he did not merely say, enjoy the beauty and enjoy the abundance. He did say that, by the way. He said, this garden is for you. Out of all of the trees, all of the fruit, you are free to eat. Except, God usually puts an except in our life so that there's an area of obedience to discourage our natural willfulness. And then God assigned them a responsibility. What was Adam and Eve's responsibility? I used to teach that work and labor was the product or the curse from the fall or from sin. It is not. Only the sweat of our brow in our labor is the curse of the fall and sin. Work began by the divine design of God. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and God said, dress it and keep it. They had responsibility to maintain the beauty and the order that God had instituted. Now that's what service is within the kingdom of God. Service in the church is not busyness. It is not religious responsibility. It is not just everybody putting a hand to the plow and helping out. Service is divinely ordained of God. It was not a building committee that originated Christian service. It was not a Bible school that thought up the idea of, 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 of spiritual service, of, uh, of church ministry, Christian service. It was not merely the, the, the needs, the overwhelming amount of things to do that necessitated everybody's hand pitching in. Within the kingdom of God, God does not bring children into the family except that God has already prepared a place for them in which they will experience their original design of function. God has service for you. God has a place within his garden, his spiritual kingdom for you. And he says, dress it and keep it, maintain the order, keep things the way that I have created them to be. That's what Christian service really is. Christian service is either restoring or maintaining the order as God intended. Now, our attitude will change drastically in the areas of our Christian service if we begin to understand that, because no more will it be busy work that somebody has to do, and so I might as well pitch in. But we begin to experience not the boredom of doing something because it has to be done and no one else will do it, but the divine fulfillment and the sense of satisfaction of knowing that this is God's place for me to function and for me to serve, for me to experience service and purpose and usefulness. No man can feel useful sitting because no one was created to sit. One of the worst things that happens to men, especially in our generation, and I understand they're about to change those kinds of things with mandatory retirement in most areas of commerce at 65 is the sense of a man who has contributed and labored and had purpose and reason to get up every morning and suddenly what was thought to be such a delight to have no obligations he finds to be lost and without usefulness, without significance, without contribution. And in the kingdom of God, God did not create us to be that way. God did not create us to be idle. God did not create us to be inconsequential as to whether we lift our hands to do something or not lift our hands to do something. God created us in his image, and that is that we are to be productive. Service then parallels what God is still doing. Let me erase part of this. And that is to bring forth effective ministry. I used to just say ministry, but I found that the word effective is probably more consequential than the word ministry, because I found that a whole lot of people's service and ministry was non-effective. It was ineffective. In fact, I found that some people's ministry was counterproductive. I found that some people's ministry, I shouldn't talk like some people, I'm pointing fingers. I found that for a long time, a great deal of my ministry was sometimes at cross purposes with what the purpose and heart and pleasure of God was. 
And I want you to know there's not anything more devastating than to one day take spiritual inventory and find out that you haven't been assisting the progress of the kingdom of God, but you have literally been a liability to it. Yes, sir. I wish I could. I don't know how to give you a particular incident. It was more an area of understanding that came to my life to realize that a great deal of my life in ministry, though well-intentioned, I have, as well as I know, since I was 10 years old, sought to love God. Um, I have, to all of my intentions, sought to serve God. At 18, I went, I went to Bible college. At 15 years old, I was called to the ministry. My involvement in ministry is not a choice of mine. It is a calling. As powerful a dealing of God has ever happened in my life, I believe in specific calling of God. God's callings are different and different in our lives, but mine happened to be a very specific moment of calling. And pastored for about 12 or almost 13 years. I have now pastored about 17 years pastored for about 12 or 13 years before I realized, and I was sharing a little bit of this with a couple of men last evening, before I realized that I had been operating as though my life and my ministry and the churches I pastored were basically franchise operations. You know the difference between a company owned and operated and a franchise operation? Well, my life and ministry and therefore the churches that were a product of my life and ministry I saw suddenly to be primarily franchise operations. I was amenable once a year for an annual inspection. I was responsible for keeping up some level of the quality of the product as intended. But in between, I was the prime minister. And in between, I basically did as I thought would be best in that situation. I endeavored to live according to God's word. I just never bothered to deal with those parts of God's Word that were not exactly comfortable or exactly convenient for me. Until the Lord really rearranged my life about five years ago, in fact, this month, um, something began to take place in my life. I began to be very distracted from ministry, and over a period of about three months, culminating on New Year's Eve of that would have been 1974, New Year's Eve 74, New Year's of 75, I planned to leave the ministry. I had become involved in television and production. It wasn't an ego trip because it wasn't on camera. It was behind camera. It was in the production of it, and that became very fascinating. I was involved in an ABC studio in San Jose and doing a number of programs, and our church was doing programs that I was producing and those kinds of things, and that began to fill a void in a boredom that I'd found in ministry. And over a period of a couple of months, I found myself less and less turned or inclined toward ministry and more and more inclined toward doing my thing and what I was finding fulfillment in and rationalizing and justifying a lot of things that I could go on serving God. And having been a pastor, I could certainly now learn how to be an excellent church member. And by a lot of mental processes, doing a lot of adjusting, um, I hope I don't just wander, but maybe this will be meaningful to somebody. New Year's Eve, up to that time, I had always, I was co-pastor, and up to that time, I had always been the one pushing to have a New Year's Eve watch night service. You familiar with watch night services? They became almost a tradition. Up to that time, I was always doing it. The other pastor was always saying, no, why, why do it? It's just late. This year, the last thing in the world I wanted to have was an extra service because I had basically arrived at my conclusion that I was through. And the other pastor insisted unexplainably that particular year. He was the one that was dead set on having a watch night service. And I tried, <laughs> I tried, <laughs> I tried everything in the world to get out of that and couldn't. We had a watch night service, met at the church from 9 to 10 o'clock with people in various rooms praying for different things and whatever, as the Lord was laying them on, various aspects of the ministry and facets of the church life, etc., coming together at 10 o'clock for a time of worship and leading communion. I led the service. We had communion. All of those things, 12 o'clock came, everybody 
said, praise the Lord, it's a brand new year and all the natural enthusiasm of that. And I scooted off the platform to the office, locked the door and sat there waiting for everyone to leave. I wanted to see no one. I wanted to talk with no one. If there was any way I could have graciously avoided that service or my public participation, I would have. I sat in my office until I was pretty safe, thought pretty sure that everyone was gone. My car was parked at the very front of the, the, the church building, the main entrance. So I sat to get from my office to the, my car. I had to walk through the sanctuary, thought everyone was gone, headed down the center aisle of the sanctuary, got about halfway down, and a lady stepped out of the lobby and started heading to me. Her name is Mrs. Eaton. Eaton. Mrs. Eaton and I had not had a great deal of contact with one another. I pastored her. I taught her. But we didn't have any particular times of sharing or closeness, particularly in relationship. She started down the aisle, and I remember still my first thoughts were, I'll just go down this row of pews and out the side and avoid her. And then I realized, thank God for the little bit of grace that was left in my life, I could not be ungracious or discourteous. And I realized the only purpose she had coming down that aisle, everybody else was gone, was obviously to say something to me. She walked down that aisle, we met in the center and stopped, and she took me by the hand and she looked me in the eyes, and she said, Pastor, I want you to know I've been watching you. She said, and for the last several weeks I've seen that you haven't really been yourself. And she said, that really doesn't matter, you don't need to tell me anything about that. She said, I just wanted to tell you as I was leaving, God spoke to my heart and said, go and let him know that you've been praying for him. Now, that's all she said. I did not even give her the satisfaction knowing that that meant anything particular to me. But when she said that, suddenly I was brought back face to face with the fact that God had a purpose for my life. And that during those months that I had been fulfilling my duties, and amazing to me was probably as effective in all outward measurements during those months as I had been in any preceding time but inwardly was horribly empty and unfulfilled. And in that sudden moment, I realized how personally concerned God was for me and how intimately involved God was with me and that God's purpose and pleasure for my life had not altered and something broke. The hardness in my heart, the callousness of my life, suddenly all melted. I knew that if I could have gotten out of that building into my automobile, I doubt very seriously if I would ever have come back to a platform or pulpit. It was basically resolved in my mind that to get him to live through that night, get into my automobile, get home to my family, and as far as I was concerned, that was it for my ministry. And that all changed in just that very brief moment when Mrs. Eaton said, Pastor, God's had you on my heart and I've been praying for you. And something broke inside of me and my life was sort of rearranged in all of the priorities that had gotten terribly out of place. I was not doing bad things. I was doing good things, but they were empty. And that suddenly reversed, and that's the only thing I can point back to what I refer to. And that is that God wants to bring not just doing, not just serving, not just ministry, but God wants us to make it effective ministry. And the only way a ministry is effective, if it is accomplishing what God purposed that ministry to accomplish. See, my life is not effective merely because I'm doing things that have apparent and outward measurements by which you say he's doing a good job. Our church was growing by leaps and bounds. That church in 10 years had grown from about 125 people to oh, about 1,800 or so and regular Sunday morning attendance. I was teaching a Bible class at 9.45 on Sunday morning that had grown from about 75 individuals to an average of over 850 every Sunday morning from at 9.45. So by outward standards, by everyone else's appraisal, my ministry was successful. But a ministry can be successful without being effective because my ministry was accomplishing what other people would credit with its success but it was not accomplishing what God had purposed when he called me into ministry. And I guess if we can come to understand that God's purpose is much bigger than outward measurements, that effective ministry is my bringing about what God commissioned me that he knew he wanted to have brought about. I then become just the instrument. I cannot take credit for it. 
I get none of the glory because I have not done it. I have merely been an instrument submitted into his hand, and as he ministers through that ministry, then he will bring about what his purpose was, and that is the sum and total of what effective ministry is. But you see, that cannot happen apart from maturity. Apart from understanding of what the heart of God is, of what the purpose of God is, of what the pleasure of God is. Until I began to so soak my life and submit my life into the counsel of God and into the heart of God and into fellowship with God and intimate relationship with God and walking with God, not just going to church, not just being religious. But until I truly begin to allow God to have control of my life, to literally allow Him to become Lord of my life, the final and absolute authority, the very word Lord means absolute authority. He's not an advisor into our lives. He's not a consultant that we bring in when we're stumped. He's not the resource in our emergencies. He happens to be the owner and possessor of us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians who were living terribly excessive and uncontrolled lives. And he said, Corinthians, do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Ghost? That you are not your own, you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your bodies and in your spirit, which is God's. And when we begin to realize that our lives are not our own and God adds his blessing to it. Our lives are not our own and we live as good as we can and expect that God give us a pat on the head every once in a while. Maturity is saying, I'm here for a reason. And that reason is to be found in the heart of God and the purpose of God. That reason is not to be found in what abilities I have or what opportunities are mine or how much I can accumulate or, or how successful or profitable I can become. But my, my purpose is to be found in what was in God's heart when he brought me forth. And maturity comes out of my understanding that I am not my own. I was created for something far larger than living. And as I am mature in that, as Christ is being manifested and he is bringing me more and more to the likeness of the Father as the Father intended, then into my life he will begin to establish his authority. He will give me anointing. You see, God will never call me to anything that he does not enable me for. And so out of that maturity, which is born of purpose, no man is mature who doesn't know purpose. If you do not perceive the fact that God has placed his hand upon your life, you can never experience true fulfillment. It is totally impossible for a man to feel significant or fulfilled merely because of how much he's able to do or how much he is able to gain. Fulfillment comes out of abandonment to a higher purpose than ourselves. If I am God in my life, then I'm going to have a miserably small and stilted kingdom. But if he is God of my life, I am going to be released into the creative purpose of what God designed and intended that is so more vast than anything I could possibly conceivably imagine. Maturity is found in the purpose of God. Authority is to the proportion and degree of our maturity. And effective ministry is the natural, supernaturally natural byproduct of those two. That's where effectiveness comes. You see, it's, a, it's really a circle, isn't it? It really is a circle. And it all comes back to purpose. And that purpose is not mine. That purpose is his. As I understand God's purpose, my life matures. As my life matures, God gives me authority or anointing. God adds his blessing to the work of my hands when the work of my hands is the work of his hands. As God gives me authority, I experience effectiveness, ministry, and is that effectiveness is effective simply because it is accomplishing what we all started with, what God intended it to accomplish.
Holy Spirit, I sense that you would have us pause. Because you want us to be men and women of purpose. Father, I'm so grateful for your goodness in my life. I'm often overwhelmed. You didn't have to be. I never could have merited it. I never could have earned or been deserving. It wasn't my works of righteousness which I had done. It was simply by grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. It's blind, but now I see. His grace brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Grace that initiated my walk in the Spirit. Grace that will accomplish the purpose of God for my walk in the Spirit. Dick, would you be able to just Lead us in amazing grace right there. Let's just sing that first verse of that, would you?